The key to sales is not that this meeting goes well. That's a key. What is actually key is that Juan is effectively able to retell your story in that subsequent meeting or set of meetings. And this is an unbelievably profound idea. Hello, y'all, and welcome back to another episode of that's right. You guessed it. Leads to growth. I'm your host, Chris McCoy with the National Association of Sales Professionals. And, you know, we've got a special one today. And I know I've said that before, probably said it almost on every episode, but, you know, everybody is special in their own way. And this is one that's really special for y'all because this 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 guy, Tim Pollard, has got some great value to get. And normally, you know, I like to get into the story. I like to really find out <clears throat> the background of people, how they got where they got. But, uh, you know, I mean, this guy's been running marketing for Barclays and uh, leading brand manager for Unilever. And now he owns his own company where he's helping change some change the world of messaging right now and sales. And so, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. We've got Tim Pollard, CEO and founder of uh, Eratorium. Er- I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Eratium. <laughs> Eratium. Uh, root. It's a, it's an obscure Latin word for an oral argument. It's where we get orator and oratory from. And see, he says it way better than I do. That's not the easiest word in the world. <laughs> Your accent just makes it sound better than mine anyway. So. <laughs> but thank you so much for being here, Tim. I appreciate you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Chris. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Now, Tim, tell me, tell me what's going on. What, what are you guys doing over there in the world of messaging for sales? I mean, this is a big challenge and a big shift in, in what's going on, how messaging is being delivered. Uh, and, and you all seem to be leading the way on some on some things here. And I'd love to have you uh, kind of share a little bit with what you're doing right now. Sure. I mean, it's an incredibly interesting and, and very, very important area. Companies have traditionally struggled to tell their story well. You know, you might have an incredibly good, well-engineered solution, but somehow when it shows up in front of the customer, it shows up as a really horrible, bloated, a PowerPoint slide deck, as solutions have gotten substantially more complex for most companies, particularly with the rise of digitization in almost any industry, that solutions complexity has been bleeding over into message complexity. That's not good. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to add a third ingredient to that toxic cocktail, we're now mostly and almost certainly into the future will continue to be to be having to deliver those messages, have those conversations in a virtual environment. So something that was historically a challenge has gotten just worse and worse and worse. Now, is that a problem? Yes, but it's also a colossal opportunity. It's without question, the companies that learn how to message effectively outperform those that don't. And we can just see that empirically with the results we get from the clients we work with. Um, In many cases, especially where there's some degree of sort of homogeneity of solutions, then the best story wins. The best sales approach wins. So this is a non. This is not a trivial issue. This is an unbelievably important issue in sales. It's probably the most important frontier in sales right now. I would say. Absolutely, and and you know, messaging is communication, right? It's, it it is <laughs> it is the essence of a salesperson and a marketer. And in, in, in this world where people are now more educated, um, you know, on, on topics and on 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 their buying decisions now than they ever have been. By the time they get yeah. to the salesperson. People are getting lost in this idea of oh personalization and automation. Um, tell me more about why relatability is, is more uh, valuable than than maybe those areas. Um, depends what you mean by relatability. It's it's absolutely essential 
that a customer sees themselves clearly in the message from the very outset. Now, um, the problem with most messaging is it doesn't even try to do that. It's tremendously sender-oriented. Just say, here's what we are, it's what we do, this is our great solution, slide after slide after slide. And because I put your name in there, we're good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if your name's on the front cover, then somehow it, it's, a, it's a customized, tailored message. The, the key, really, to answering that question is backing up and looking at what the problems are with most messaging, and then that kind of informs how you have to solve for them. So if you want to, we can talk about that a little bit. And then that, I think, explains why it has to change in the way it needs to change. What a great place to start. What are we doing wrong out there right now? What are the, what, what are the problems with messaging right now, Tim? I mean, the first thing to say is none of us set out to build really stupid messages. I mean, our motives are good. What happens, though, is we're driven by forces sometimes that we don't understand. So this is a this is a deck I just you know grabbed this morning. This is a very well-known technology company. Everyone watching this has bought products in their corporate world, at least, has bought from this company. And it's emblematic. It's a bad PowerPoint. PowerPoint is not the problem. The fundamental problem um, is what we do within that PowerPoint. Typically, what you're going to see are three big mistakes. The first one is too much information. What we do is we're so keen to tell a complete story. We want to cover all the bases. It is a complex solution. We've added more and more to the solution. So these decks just get more and more and more bloated. It's perfectly common to see 60, 80, 90, 100 slide decks. What we don't realize is we're creating complete cognitive overload. It doesn't matter how good our motors are, we're doomed to fail. The second problem is that almost all sales messaging is in some measure confusing to the customer, or perhaps better put, the value proposition is unclear. I don't leave this going, okay, I'm absolutely clear why this is so critical for me and why I really need to act and move. I go through decks like this. I'm like, yeah, I sort of understand it, but it doesn't in any way grab me. It's not in any way compelling. There's lots of sub-reasons behind that. One is we pack too much in. One is we just love to dive into sort of technical terminology, and that is completely baffling to a lot of people on the buying group. The other thing you'll see here is almost always a complete lack of narrative flow. We may get into this later, but the human brain desperately needs a story. If you read a book out of sequence, it makes no sense. And so we throw all these slides together in what I would call a topic-driven narrative, and it's completely incomprehensible and, and largely uh, forgettable. And then the third hallmark, and this really gets, I think, to the issue we have to solve for of relatability and personalization or customization, is we tend to be tremendously sender-oriented. And again, I, I could pick up any one of a dozen decks I have lying around here, but this is slide after slide of features, functions, feed speeds, how it got started. At its worst, it's even more the madness of this. You know, here we are. This is our building in Chicago. Here's some other buildings we have in other U.S. locations, other buildings we have around the world. This deck is a real deck that we, we fix the message for. 11 slides of, you know, architectural digest for a company that makes a very important component of the smart grid. So it's madness, right? Um, and what happens is when you combine these, you create two really, really bad outcomes. The first one is that your messaging is simply not compelling. Um, you know, you can win, but the customer has to do an unbelievable amount of work to figure out what you were really trying to say and where the value is. 
So you, you just don't get out of as many sales pursuits successfully as you should. But I would argue there's a second issue here. And funny enough, it's a word very similar to relatability. It's the word retellability. And I think if your audience today really wants to attach to one idea, which will be completely transformative to them, it's, it's retellability. It's the most important word in communication, and it's unquestionably the most important word in sales communication. Now, let me explain, but I'm sure we already instinctively know what I'm going to talk about here. This is you. So let's say this is you, Chris, and you're pitching some solution product, and just for the sake of simplicity, to one person. Let's say this is um, Juan, right? So you're talking to Juan. Now, is that is that meeting important? Yes, it is. But is that the most important meeting? No, not even close. Never. Why? Because Juan is not ever going to be the unique and sole decision maker. And by the way, even if he's a CEO, that's still true. He's never going to make the decision alone. He's not making the decision there. Sometime later, there's another meeting. And what's crucial is that, Chris, this is a meeting you don't get to be invited to. You as a seller very rarely get to be invited here. This is the decision-making body of the customer, and this is where the decision gets made. And, and I think the most important thing to understand about messaging is these groups have been growing steadily in size and importance, and their behavior is interesting to observe. These groups now spend about 80-plus percent of their time, in fact, 83% of their time, sequestered alone, very little time spent with sellers. Now, what does that mean? You see what it means. The key to sales is not that this meeting goes well. That's a key. What is actually key is that Juan is effectively able to retell your story in that subsequent meeting or set of meetings. And this is an unbelievably profound idea because nobody really understands it or, or thinks about it enough. How many times, I mean, I've met thousands of salespeople. How many times have you left a sales meeting and like, yeah, we nailed it. And you open the champagne and you just wait for the good news. And two weeks later, it's like, yeah, thanks. We're not going with you. Like, what? What the hell happened here? And what happened is we failed to bridge this chasm. Now, we could talk all day about this, but let me give you three enormous implications. If you know your messaging is somewhat weak here, I guarantee you it is failing catastrophically here. Why? Because good salespeople tend to be very adept at wrangling a bad deck and making it work. Let's say sales in, uh, enablement gave you this or marketing, or you just built this, but you had to do it really fast because you're so busy. And you look at this 30-slide deck. Well, I ain't going to present these 30. I'm going to present four slides, and I'm probably going to present slides 4, 23, 8, and 15, because that would be a logical sequence. Great, you sort of made it work. What chance does Juan have of doing that? None. This is going in the trash, as you all know. He isn't going to try and defend 26 slides that he never even saw, or even try to recreate this narrative that this guy wrangled out of it. So we fool ourselves, because what we say is, this worked, but the only reason it worked is I, I somehow wrestled this bear to the ground. That's not going to happen here. And that's you got to remember, this meeting is where sales live or die. This is where a sales pursuit goes to die. Well, the second thing then that that means is, and this is probably the most important thing I'll say today, 
We fixate on first meeting success. We think we've got to crush that meeting. That is completely wrong. If I'm in sales, I've got to wake up with a completely different thought, which is I have to achieve second meeting success. So in other words, is my message so crisp, so clean, so compelling that, that Juan is, is, is not only motivated, but completely able to retell this story? And that's a completely different standard. If the one thing that people took out of this today that would be completely transformative is are you building a message that will work incredibly effective in the second meeting? And the reason that's so important is you just look at this and you know this can't work. We'll get to this later. Take a very complex technical solution like WebEx. This is what a message for WebEx now looks like from 60 slides down to a four panel document and running at an astonishingly high conversion rate. And then the final thing, let me just say this and then let's chat about it maybe. This also changes the way you have to think about the very purpose of messaging. Is it the purpose of a sales message to persuade? Yeah, absolutely, it is. Is that its only purpose? No, it is equally the purpose of a sales message to equip. And I guarantee you, you could ask a thousand salespeople, do you build sales messaging to persuade? They'll say yes. If I say, do you build sales messaging to equip this person to advocate effectively in subsequent meetings, they'll say, no, I don't. In fact, I've never even really thought about that. So this idea of retellability is the single most load-bearing theme you've got to get your head around if you're thinking about sales messaging. But once you build this way, astonishing things then, then begin to happen. So I'm very passionate about this. So I'll take a breath now and drink my Pink Floyd coffee. <laughs> I love it. I, I mean, it, it is it is a a lot of known concepts put together and some clarity around a situation that has a lot of um, misunderstandings around it. Um, you know, you, you talk about the you know the, the old thing as a as a child, the telephone game. You know, yeah, how, exactly. how how reliable is that message by the time it gets around the circle, and 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 how do you how do you change that reliability? Will you make it something that's familiar? How do you yeah. make something more familiar is you make that a story, right? A story is something that they can identify because people can't tell the difference between something vividly imagined and something that really happens. So if you tell a story, it's compelling enough when, when they're sharing it with the others, they're retelling a story that they are now familiar with, that yeah. they maybe now yeah. have experienced in some way, which creates some retention in that, in that behavioral psychology, I imagine that you mentioned yeah. earlier. Um, and, and that is just really beautiful. And I love the concept of of measuring second meetings. Um, there's so many times where I've experienced the uh, uh, the first meeting win, but then, you know, that insecurity, you know, they've lost so many of those second meetings that they're like, all right, hey, can <laughs> yeah. I present to you and your team? Or, hey, do you mind if I jump in there? You know, like, hey, yeah. whoa, whoa. But this is a successful way to do it. Yeah. And, and one more thing before, Tim, because I want to let you go back in and I know you've got another beautiful thing to share here. The other thing that, that I think is, is also beautiful about this is that the psychology around that second meeting, you want to give somebody something that they can relay that everybody else can accept right away. If they're trying to explain it to that team and they get confused, instantly the rest of the group is done. Then they're Absolutely. out. They're all automatically out. They've taken a position now, even if it was the best thing for you, for them, for everybody, they've taken a position because people with conf or confused will, will instantly say no. And so I, I love that. I love this. Yeah, go ahead, Tim. 
Well, it's very interesting. Three observations on what you just said. There's three interesting things you said in sequence. One is the telephone game is a beautiful illustration. I mean, the telephone game proves that one single word gets corrupted in a live face-to-face in the room environment. I mean, how much could it be any easier than one word being passed around kids in a classroom? If that can get corrupted, what are the odds that this is showing up anything like the way you want it to in the second meeting? It's the first point. The second thing you said is, this is why we need a story. That's true. That is, and and you picked a good one there, but in fact, that's not the only thing. There are about five or six critical hallmarks. Story is one of them. There are four or five other things you have to do in order uh, to make that work. And we can get into that if you like. The third thing you said was really interesting is you started to get into the nature of the buying group. Let's go back to an issue we said earlier. Imagine you're a technical seller. You work for IBM, Cisco, Kindra, anyone like that. So you're a technical seller and the person you're meeting with is a relatively technical buyer. Great. What if the buying group contains, as it will, finance, operations, legal, HR, procurement? This issue of over-technical messaging will never present itself to you because this individual probably understood most of what you were saying. But it's a bear trap because he takes this into this room and these guys have no clue. So you've got to get this. The second meeting issue changes the way you think about sales. We're never dumbing down a message, but I've got to persuade procurement, finance, operations. So in fact, if, if you care about this, I'm sure you do, the majority of technical messaging doesn't fail in the first meeting. It fails in the second messaging message meet the second meeting because this group has no clue what you're talking about. And then it comes down a lot to power dynamics. If this guy, Juan, can simply say, we're doing this, sign it off, well, good for you, great, but that never happens. If these guys don't understand it, this is why I said the best message wins. So in fact, you want to go really deep, you actually need to construct a message with a clear understanding of the composition and decision-making roles of the buying group. Now you get into that, now you're really, really cooking on gas. I'll show you some examples later of companies that have had breakthrough success by understanding the buying group and then connecting with them in the right way. We probably can't get into detail of how you do that, but yeah. yeah listen, I definitely want you to get into those uh, those the six steps that you were talking about earlier as well. But the, you know, the one piece that that when I started off the conversation was, which was you know, a little short-sighted. I didn't realize Tim was bringing this messaging here, right? Uh, so so what I was talking about is, is, is relatability and then that connection. So here's an interesting part about identifying as a, being your human self when you're out there prospecting and reaching out to people is because you connect with somebody that has some familiarity and some connection with you. And, and, and really like trust and respect is really what you want going into that second meeting and a very simple story. You don't want to have to fax somebody to death in order to convince them or persuade them. If you can get them yeah. to like, trust and respect you and then give them just enough, you're setting yourself up for a great opportunity for a second meeting. And, and I never really thought about it in that perspective of the second meeting opportunity. Boy, you are just ripping the lid off several Pandora's boxes. We're not going to have time to get into this, but the relationship between trust messaging and sales effectiveness is a very, very interesting one. I'll say this. There are different, there are two fundamental different ways trust gets created. One of them 
is through some aspects of your personal demeanor. And I can't get into that, but it is to do with things like passion, authenticity, and authority. When you, when you bring a certain level of passion, we've actually done a deep study on how personal stylistic attributes correlate with trust. Um, and I, but I don't want to get into that now. That's probably 30% of it. 70% of trust is probably created from the customer's overall impression of the complete message. Because if you develop a great message and the customer leaves saying, man, you really understand my business, you understand my problems, how they're hurting me, and you're presenting me with a genuinely credible solution that appears to solve that problem and is implementable in a non-disruptive way, I like that. I'm going to go with it. All human decision-making is right brain. It's emotionally centered. It's not rationally centered. It's been proven for decades. So what a great message does, really getting into the deep water here, but I love it. What a great sales message does is fully dispose of the customer's rational issues. But in its totality, it creates trust because you have shown in a complete way that you understand and can solve the customer's problem. Now, this is way deep for a first podcast, but but it, it'll probably make sense if I show you what a message looks like that does that, and then we can kind of loop back to how it's working at both a in a very deep psychological way at both a rational and an emotional level. Okay, y'all, this guy is killing it, huh? Tim Pollard, wow, give it up for this guy. All right, y'all, we're going to break here and we're going to come back next week when Tim starts talking about what does world-class messaging look like and how is it time to brain science and how we consume information. So make sure you tune in next week to the rest of Tim Pollard and we are Leads to Growth. Don't forget to like, comment, and share. You know, do all the stars, all the things, and we'll see you next week. NASP.com, y'all, talk to you soon.